listening to Low Roads and High Places, a sermon series from the book of 1 Kings, preached in the winter of 2009 at Hocusson Baptist Church. Today's sermon is entitled, What Did God Really Say? And now, Pastor John. I want to welcome you again, and I want to welcome you particularly right now into our sermon series we've entitled High Roads and Low Places. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, you're joining us in, uh, in a, the progression of a series of messages on the book of 1 Kings focused on the northern kingdom of Israel. So we're looking at the book of 1 Kings uh, all the way up until uh, Palm Sunday, in fact, and we're focusing on the rise and fall of the kingdom of Israel during that time. And so if you're new, you're kind of jumping in midstream, I want to give you a very brief very brief update as to where we've been. Um, most of you know that uh, the Jewish people eventually cried out for a king from the Lord, so not because it was his good and perfect will, but because they kept crying out, give us a king, give us a king, everybody else has a king, we want a king. He said, fine, you can have a king. And he gave them a king, and his name was Saul. Saul was not good, and so the Lord destroyed Saul and raised up a second king, and this king's name was David. I told you to be quick. David was good. Uh, David was very good. And the Lord made a great covenant with David. And uh, David passed his kingship through the Lord onto his son named Solomon. Now Solomon started out good, but Solomon ended really, really bad. And because Solomon ended really, really bad, the Lord said this. The Lord said, I am going to uh, take the kingdom from the Solomon, and I'm going to give ten of the twelve tribes to a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam will secede with ten of the twelve tribes, but because I love David, he will preserve two. And that kind of gets us to where we started our series. Jeroboam receives this kingdom from God. It's very clear in Scripture that God spoke to Jeroboam, that he received the kingdom from God, but Jeroboam immediately turned his back on the Lord and began to behave as though the kingdom was his, began to behave as though... He was the true king of Israel. Now in that process, he did a lot of things. Uh, he conjured up a, a god, he, he, a golden calf that he called God. He instituted new worship. He ordained priests of his own liking. And that was last week. Now, but the break between chapter 12, which was last week, and 1 Kings chapter 13, which is our lesson for this week, there is, in my opinion, about 22 years. King Jeroboam's reign lasted 22 years. And there's evidence from the scriptures, if you continue to read past 13, that this account in the 13th chapter of 1 Kings is occurring at the end of Jeroboam's reign, not at the beginning. So last week we saw how Jeroboam started. This week we kind of get insight as to what Jeroboam eventually creates with this mess. And so we're seeing kind of the perversion of Jeroboam in its full maturity in this reading today, and it's, it's worth appreciating that the time has gone by, that the people in Israel, the, this new Jeroboam religion, this idolatrous Jeroboam religion is no longer a new thing. They've worshipped it, they've grown up worshipping it, their children worship it, and many of them, many young people, probably don't remember anything but Jeroboam's religion. So that's where we are right now. And this is the end of a saga. By this point, Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom, have gone to war not once, not twice. They've been at war constantly. 
trying to defeat one another this whole time. Jeroboam has gone so far by this point in Scripture that he made a pact, a treaty with the pharaoh of Egypt. His name was Shishak. And Shishak invaded Judah from the south, and Jeroboam cheered him on the whole time. Right on! And, and Shishak plundered Judah, pillaged the temple. It talks about it in the next chapter of 1 Kings, the kind of uh, uh, terror that Shishak was coming on. But Shishak did not go into Israel except, and we know this not from Scripture, we know this in fact because in the temple of Karnak in Egypt, it's written that Shishak went all the way through Judah pillaging, and then he also did this. He went to various Levite towns in Israel and destroyed them. Now that just shows you what's going on in Jeroboam's mind. This religion that Jeroboam initially instituted, which is, hey, now you can worship this new God, is now matured from that to, this is the state religion. It used to be you can worship this. Now it's, if you're not going to bend and bow a knee to the calves of Jeroboam, you will perish. And the cities of the Levites, these cities of refuge that the Lord had established centuries before, there's every reason to believe that some of those Levites remained faithful. They said, we're not, we are the priests of the temple, not the ones Jeroboam said. The evidence is that Jeroboam invited the Egyptians in to go destroy those cities. And so I just want you to appreciate that that is where things are when the 13th chapter of 1 Kings opens. And that's where we are this morning. I'm going to finish reading the 13th chapter in a minute, but I just want you to to realize we're kind of at the end of of this reign, and we come upon this very strange story that you've already heard part of. It's strange. For normal readers of Scripture, you get to this chapter and you're like, huh. It's one of those chapters that makes you go, hmm. Because things don't happen the way you want them to happen. The, the, wrong, the ways the characters play with each other is counterintuitive. The wrong people seem to die. The wrong people seem to live. It starts with what the Bible calls a man of God from Judah. He's never named. In, in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, A man of God from Judah. And I think the writers want you to remember not who he was, but who he was. He was a man of God, and he was from Judah. They don't want you to think of his name as, you know, Abimelech. They want you to remember, like, in his essence, who he was. This man of God from Judah, he comes up from the southern kingdom amidst all this warfare, amidst all this strife, after being pillaged by the Egyptians. He comes into Israel, and where does he go? He doesn't just go on a missions trip. He walks into the temple of Jeroboam's God during a worship service as Jeroboam is sacrificing and he proclaims a word of the Lord of condemnation right there. That's what happens. Jeroboam says, get that guy. And the Lord wraps Jeroboam's arm up and constrains it. You can just imagine what's happening. You know, he tries to point for his soldiers to go, go get, and his arm just gets contorted. And Jeroboam cries out. He says these interesting words. He says, He says to the man of God from Judah, he says, cry out to what? The scripture says, cry out to your God. Do you see how far Jeroboam is? This is no longer, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. The calves are a completely different God by this point. Jeroboam says, cry out to your God, O man of God from Judah, that my arm may be healed. And the man of God says, cry out. And the guy's hand is healed. And then Jeroboam does this thing. He says, come eat with us. 
presumably as a way to, maybe diplomacy will work, right? If the finger didn't work, maybe dinner will work. And he calls there, the prophet denies this dinner. He says, in fact, you have got to be crazy if I would eat with you. If you offered me half your kingdom, I wouldn't sit down with you, Jeroboam, because the Lord has clearly spoken to me. The Lord spoke to me and he said, you will neither eat the bread in this land or the water in this land. You won't even return the way you came. You're going to go back home a different path. You turn your back on this town of Bethel. You turn your back on this idolatrous nation and you go home. That's what the Lord said. That's what, that's what the man of God from Judah says to Jeroboam. You'd be crazy for me to fellowship with this sin. And so he leaves. And then you come across the story. It takes a turn, right? He's, the man of God from Judah is going home and this prophet, this prophet of Israel, presumably a false prophet, presumably a prophet of the temples of Bethel. He's in Bethel. He gets wind that there is a real man of God in town. That's how you should read this is, you know, here's this prophet of these calves, and now a real man of God shows up. And, it's, and his son actually tells him, and you can almost see the conversation if you read it. If you read it four or five times, it's essentially there in your mind's eye. The, the father says to the son, you mean a real man of God came to town and you didn't stop him? You didn't invite him to dinner? And the son's like, well, get my donkey. Go get my donkey. Start the donkey. Get it warmed up. I'll be out in a second. You know, and the, dad, the old prophet's like, I'll be there. I'm coming. And so he gets on his donkey and he rides down and he says to this man of God from Judah, man of God from Judah, stay with me. You can see in his mind, bless my home. Bring your power and your good charm and, and your aura and, and your yin and your yang into my place so that I may benefit from this great teaching. And, and what does the man of God from Judah say? He says the same thing he just said. No, the Lord said I can't do this. Lord said not to eat or drink. And the false prophet says this. He says, oh, God told you that, but an angel came and told me that, but that God was wrong when he told you. So now you can come and eat with me. And the man of God says, well, I guess I'm pretty hungry. Sounds fair. And he eats. And at the very end of the eating, this false prophet, this man of Bethel, this prophet of Bethel, gets a unique experience. God enters into his life and speaks through his mouth across the dinner table. And this is verse 22. I'll begin reading in verse 22 and I'll finish the chapter. You came back. This is God speaking through the false prophet. You came back and ate bread and ate drink water in this place where you were told not to eat or to drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your father's. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown down on the road with the, both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body thrown down there with the lion standing beside the body. And they went to report it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back on his journey heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him, as the word of the Lord had warned him. The prophet said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And so they did. And then he went and he found the body thrown down on the road with the donkey and the lion lying beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back to his own city 
to mourn for him and bury him. Then he laid the body in his own tomb, and they mourned over him and said, O my brother. After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places and in the towns of Samaria will surely come true. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests from high places, from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. Now, like I said, this whole story is kind of a story that makes you go, huh. It's just this, it's, it's colorful, it has these colorful scenes, it has this interplay that you don't expect. And it, it seems to reveal, on a reading, a side of God that we're not generally comfortable with. We certainly don't see it very often, or so we think. And it causes us to start asking questions. Like, why does God kill the man of God? Of all the people in this story to kill, why the man of God? He's a, he is a man of God. It's not, it's not a title. He's a man of God. Why does the Lord take him? On the man of God standardized testing, he probably scored like a 90%. Imagine what the Lord did with him. He's a, he's a quality man of God. Surely he disobeyed the Lord. But he was kind of tricked. I mean, I don't think I'm alone when I say it. I feel that. It was, it was just, just it was a trick. It all comes down to this. What the Bible calls a man of God. He's a good guy. He's amidst all these villains. And God kills him. And the bad guy's getting away scot-free. Now, some of us here, when we read stories like this, kind of bizarre stories, we kind of step back a little bit and we say to ourselves, well, this is what I know about the Bible. I know the Bible's true. I believe that, and I believe God's good. So when you read a story like this, you just tell yourself, I know the Bible's true, and I believe God's good? God's good, right? And we kind of scratch our head and we move on, and we don't like to read stories like this. And there's other people that are kind of like super sovereignists, where their answer to every story that's difficult is, well, God did it. God's good and God did it and God's allowed to do what he wants to do. And certainly that's accurate. I mean, I I can say, can preach from the pulpit, God is sovereign. God can do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do. And that is a sufficient answer for everything that will ever happen on the face of this earth. But it is not a useful answer. It's like if we ask a scientific question and someone says, well, God did it. You know, why does the sunrise? God did it. Why does a cocoon burst? God did it. Why does it? God. You know, it's correct. God did it all, but it's not useful. It doesn't answer the question. And so we, we, we simply can't look at this and say, it troubles me, but God did it. Without asking some, some a, a deeper questions, because in a way, when we start asking these questions, we learn that the patterns of the way the Lord's behave are truly consistent, even though they may not seem consistent at first. So what we're going to do as we continue, is we're going to look at some assumptions that we have, or that I think many of us have, when we read stories like this, when we read this account, some of our assumptions, our false assumptions, and kind of work through um, how is God working in them. So if, if you'll pray with me, 
we'll look at some of these assumptions. Play with me, please. Lord Jesus, I pray you bless our time. Lord, I, help, I pray you help us see you rightly. And help us read your word rightly and help us grow from it, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here is faulty assumption number one. When we read this story, I think most people or many people or, or some of you in some capacity feel like the man of God was tricked. He was duped. I think some of us feel that way. And certainly I would agree with you that the false prophet was sneaky. The, the false prophet lied. He told the fib. And the man of God reacted due to it. But let's just take a second to think about this man of God. How vocal do you think the Lord had been in, this man, in the man of God's life for him to do what he did? Sitting at home, doing whatever a man of God does on a, a day of the week. What do you think would it would take for the Lord to get him up out of his seat, go to the northern kingdom, now they're arch enemies, across the border to walk into the worship service and to declare it a heresy and condemn it in the presence of the king? If it was you, if you were a man of God, we have many men and women of God here, what would it take you how clear would the Lord have to be to get you to do that? A little bit clear? You wouldn't, this is not the kind of thing where you'd call me up and you'd say, you know, John, uh, maybe I can meet you in your office because I feel the Lord working in my life. <laughs> and I mean, I, I'm really wrestling with if I should, you know, start a Bible study or go to the northern kingdom and declare apostasy in the temple. You no, know, that doesn't happen. There's clearly... The Lord has been clearly working in the life of the man of God for him to boldly do this. In fact, when Jeroboam says, well, eat with me, you see the clarity in the message to this man of God because he essentially almost gives you the map quest route out. He says, the Lord said, I can't eat bread with you. I can't eat water with you. I can't even sup with you. I need to leave and not by the route I came. I mean, it's the clarity of the Lord's message is so obvious that it makes you wonder, how does he fall to a prophet in Bethel who says, oh, I was an angel. That's it. An angel said to me that your God made a mistake. Really, you're supposed to eat dinner with me tonight. Now, do you think if it was you and the Lord made himself as clear as he has to be for you to get up, go to the northern kingdom, stand in the temple, point your finger at the king and at the altar, proclaim a word of condemnation, to do all that, do you think that you can honestly say, I was tricked by a false prophet, a nobody, a man of God groupie, who's galloping on a donkey to meet somebody. He's, he, this, is, this is not some great title of, of compo opposing doctrines. God spoke clearly to the man of God, and this guy shows up out of nowhere and says, an angel told me. This, in my mind, happens all the time. It happens to us. It happens to the church. Where we have God's clear word given to us. I'm not saying that I understand every word of it. I'm not saying I know how to apply every word of it. But where you and I live, we have God's divine word given to us in clarity. In clarity in many translations, if you want it. There's more books written on this book than any other book ever written. There is so much clarity about what's here. But you know what happens? 
the world comes to us from the outside. They've neither read the book, they neither worship the Lord that we worship, they don't partake in the community we partake in, they don't have the worldview we have, and you know what they do? They say this, they say, let me tell you what God really said. That's what they say. The world outside says, you have it wrong. How can you possibly understand what God says? All you have is his Bible and his people and his spirit working in you, validating his existence day by day in your lives. We have none of that, so let us tell you what God really said. That happens all the time. The context, the community, the sociology of our, of our culture, let us begin to give you, O Christian, commentary on a Bible we've never read. I would say every sociological issue, without exception, that is right now on the table of American discussion is being argued from that perspective. The world is saying, let me tell you what God said. And I'm here to say, if we are a man of God, we say, we know what God said. It's clear. False assumption number one, the man of God was tricked. False assumption number two, the punishment of the man of God is too harsh. The punishment of the man of God is too harsh. Some of you will say, okay, it's true, he wasn't tricked, he was tempted, but still, that seems a little bit harsh. It was just one sin. After all, he did a lot of good things. Well, it may feel harsh, and I can't give you a full answer here. I mean, that's, that's up to you to judge. But I do want to put his death in some perspective. The lion does something interesting. The lion kills the man of God, but he does not do what? He doesn't eat him or, or ravage his body or drag him across the streets. So in a way, when he, somebody arrives at his body, it isn't this gory mess. It doesn't look like roadkill. He's a dead man. Okay? Now, to us, that's not significant because in our, in our lives, we're thinking, well, what does it matter to a dead man whether his body's ravaged or not? He's dead. But in times of antiquity, what happened to the dead body of a family member was extremely important. It was important that their bodies were properly mourned, properly prepared, properly interned, and properly remembered. That's how it was done. And so we see that this man was killed, which is certainly an act of judgment. But we need to also realize that this man was gathered, that he was mourned, and that he was buried, and that he was remembered. In fact, he was remembered so much, by the way. By the way, Jeroboam and his entire family ended up being killed and dragged and eaten by the dogs. That's the prophecy against his family. If you want to compare God's judgment, he says, I'll kill the man of God, but I'll bury him and remember him. Jeroboam's family, only one child survives and is actually mourned. Everyone else is assassinated and defamed. But just to give you an idea, in 2 Kings chapter 20, 23, and if you, if, if you want to read more about this, 2 Kings chapter 23 fulfills the story here. It's a story about a king of Judah named Josiah. And Josiah comes up and he comes to Bethel as he's purging the idolatry out of the land. He arrives in Bethel and you know what he does? He sat, just like the man of God prophesied, he sacrifices, he kills all the priests of Bethel. And he starts to exhume. Imagine around Bethel, there's all the tombs of these prophets and priests. And you know what he says? He says, they do not deserve burial. And he begins to exhume all their tombs. He says, take their bones, out of the, unbury them. Take their bones out, place them on the altar of this idolatrous God, and sacrifice their bones there. 
And that's how they will be remembered. And so Josiah is doing that. And he comes to a tomb where there's writing he doesn't understand. And he says, what's the deal with this tomb? And somebody from Bethel says, well, a long, long, long time ago, there was this prophet, a man of God who came from Judah. He spoke against the temple and he's buried in that tomb. And Josiah says, this tomb alone preserve. So it may be harsh, but this man of God is not, it is not as harsh as we may presume. And the second thing about this is we need to ask, what is the mission of God here? What is God trying to accomplish in this whole story? We have need to say, well, if God did kill him, why might God kill him? And let's think of it this way. For some reason, God has decided to speak to Israel. He's sending his, a man of God to Israel to speak. And what does the man of God speak? The man of God speaks about God. He displays the power of God. He points to the, the altar cracks in half at the words of the man of God. The stone altar cracks. Jeroboam goes to seize him, and the Almighty God mightily preserves him through the power of God's own arm. So God displays his glory. God pronounces his judgment. God is doing all these things. God is showing himself to the people of Israel. This is who I am. 22 years, you've not worshipped me in Bethel. I'm now taking a step to reveal myself anew. And what does this false prophet want to go see? Is he going to meet God? No, he wants to meet the man of God. Do you see that? God does all this work to display his power, to reveal himself, and the prophet in Bethel says, oh, I've got to gotta have this guy for dinner. It's like, it's like you ever hear, one day hearing the best message, that, like Billy Graham being in this room, preaching this evangelistic gospel to you, walking away going, I can't remember anything he said, but oh, I've got to have him over for dinner. Imagine what people would say if Billy Graham ate dinner with me. I would be so holy. That's what's happening here. And God is looking down going, my presence, my revelation, the imprint I'm about to make on Israel is at stake with what this man of God does. Because if the man of God turns his back and heads back to Bethel and sits down, the man of God and not God will be recognized. And I think that's why the Lord kills him. The Lord kills him for his purpose. And I would pray the Lord would be as devout in meeting his purpose today as he is then. Even if it means a few of us get mauled. I think God is more serious about God than any of us. God is highly concerned about preserving his purpose. It takes preservation over, over the preservation of our life. It takes precedent over our happiness or our well-being on this earth. God's revelation is what's first. And that's why I think the man gets killed. Still, there are some false assumptions. And, here, and this is our third one. Why, okay, I understand the man wasn't tricked, he was tempted, and I understand that this mauling by the line, is, it could have been worse, that there was actually honor in it. I understand. But still, at the end of the day, the good guy dies and the bad guys live. Am I right? I mean, that's a little odd about this story. The good guy dies and the bad guy Lives. And this is our third false assumption, that God's got the wrong guy. His death is so ironic because there's villains on the left and the right of him. You know, you have over here the evil king, <laughs> and over here you have this prophet, you know, ooh, 
And in the middle you have the man of God, and God strikes the man of God down. And our sense of justice kind of ekes at that. Come on. It would be so much easier if God had just struck down the bad guys and maybe slapped the wrist of the man of God. It would have made more sense to us. Shouldn't they be the ones getting punished? I think that's exactly the question we need to ask. I think when we can get past the mauling of the lion and start asking the more important questions, why does God not destroy the bad guys? Why does God not destroy the villains? That starts to bring our attention to what's the, what's the purpose of this story in the first place. Why, we need to say, the question we really need to ask is, why did God send a man of God to Israel in the first place at all? If God was a God of judgment, why send a, why send a prophet? If God was a God of judgment, why even try to send a message to the north? Why not just smite it with the, with the Babylonians or the Assyrians, as eventually happens? But it happens after God tries and tries and tries and tries again to reach them. It starts with the man of God from Judah. It ends with Hosea. Calling Israel back to repentance. Calling their sin a sin. Notice, if God were such a judging God, why would, look at what his pronouncement is in the temple. Does, God, does the man of God point his finger at Jeroboam and say, cursed are you, Jeroboam? Is that what the scripture says? It doesn't. It says, O altar. Did you look at that? The man of God goes in the temple. He walks straight up to the altar. He doesn't even look at the king and he says, altar. It's a pronouncement against the altar of Jeroboam. It shows that God's hatred and his vengeance and his anger are generally expressed not first at us, but at the sins around us. God has no love at all for our sin. God immediately hates idolatry. God has some foundational love for us. I mean, wouldn't you think that the man of God would walk in and go, Jeroboam's the problem. For crying out loud, Jeroboam made the calves. Remember that? Jeroboam made the calves. Jeroboam made the temple. Jeroboam ordained the priests. Jeroboam held the festival. Jeroboam raises the sacrifices. And the man of God walks in and he points at the altar and he says to the altar, Cursed are you. That's what he says. O altar, O altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born and on you he will sacrifice. The hatred of God, the vengeance of God, the judgment of God is being expressed against the sin of idolatry. I think that this story is a story of mercy, not judgment. I can't explain why God would send a messenger to the northern kingdom if it is not a story of mercy. I can't explain why God would bypass Jeroboam, would bypass the false prophet, and would worry about his message being heard in the northern kingdom if this were not a story of mercy. I can't understand how God would heal the hand of a wicked king if this were not a story of mercy. God is trying to reveal himself to a people who have forgotten who he is. And so he preserves them at the expense of his own people. It's in God's patience that we depend. Every one of us who has come to faith has come to faith because God has sent a messenger into a hostile land to tell us a message of truth. Despite the fact that we did not want to hear it the first time or the second time or the third time or for the first decade of our adult life, God continues to send 
the Word of God into our life. God continues to speak mercy in behalf of our life. And He doesn't say what you're doing is okay. God continues to express His hatred of our idolatry, His hatred of our sin, while allowing us to live amidst His patience. And that's what's happening here. Jeroboam is permitted to live a full life in the patience of the Lord. And the prophet is permitted to live a full life in the patience of the Lord. Ezekiel says this, the word of God, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? This is a story of patience. If I could round the edges of the details of the story off, you know what it would be a story of? It would be a story of God sending a man from the tribe of Judah to a land that has forgotten him to preach a word of repentance and of promise to a people who have forgotten. And it's a story of a man who is killed and placed in a tomb, not his own. That is completely consistent with the God I know. That is completely consistent to the Christ I confess, and that is completely consistent with the salvation we claim. This is a story of mercy. Thank God that Jeroboam had more time. Because at least the prophet found God in all this, didn't he? At the very end of this entire mess, it takes a lion mauling the prophet for the prophet to go, this is not the man. The man is not the issue. The, ver- the punchline of the whole story is the prophet goes, surely God is at work here and that every word that was proclaimed will come true. The theme of kings, the theme of the fall of Israel is the fact that Israel falls despite God, despite the fact that God tries and tries again to redeem it. And that's the theme of this Bible.